Well, our uh, scripture reading tonight is from Acts 1, first chapter of the book of Acts. Acts, uh, if you're not familiar, comes right at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, and the, the, the writer of Acts is actually the, the same writer of the Gospel, Luke. Uh, it's the same author uh, that then tells the, the story of the church, the story of Jesus moving through his church in the book of Acts. So let's uh, hear his words, but of course, uh, though the words are penned by this gospel writer, Luke, they are inspired by the Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us with authority, the same kind of authority as if our Lord himself were teaching us these things. So let's hear together the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the, day, until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on at him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we, we've, been, we've been looking at some of the core foundations of who we are as a church, who we are as a congregation. And if you're not familiar with this tool, we call it our covenant wheel. It, it basically walks through our convictions, what we wholeheartedly believe as a church, our values, what's true of us as a church, and in our behaviors. What, what, what is the shape of the Christian life? Um, and, and so this is kind of captured through these three core convictions. We want to be a people of the gospel. Um, and of course, we want the gospel to be at the very center of our lives. We want to be clear on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. We want to be, as we described a few weeks ago, uh, a vision for gospel fluency. We want to be fluent in the gospel, meaning we, we want to apply the gospel to our lives and to know how to apply the gospel to every little part of our lives. But we also believe that the gospel calls us together to be a people, to be a kingdom people, to be loyal to this kingdom of Christ above all of the other kingdoms that we may be a part of in this life that we fundamentally, foundationally are part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And of course, we gather 
That's what we're doing right now. We gather as a kingdom family uh, to love one another, to stir one another along, to, to, to come together in communion as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's, that's why I love this gathering. It's so special. This is a family meeting. It's an inward-facing meeting. We're, we're coming together for God's sake to worship the Lord, but also for the sake of one another because we care about one another and we want to stir one another along toward obedience to the Lord. But then in about an hour, we're, unless you stay for tacos, an hour, two hours, we're going to scatter. And we scatter as kingdom ambassadors to be representatives to the world of this kingdom, of this kingdom of Christ. And of course, that leads to the third conviction, which is mission, that we are called on mission by Christ. When we scatter, we scatter, we, we talk about this in the great commandments and the great commission. We, we wanna love our neighbor. I'm gonna be a blessing to this community that the Lord has called us to. And we also want to scatter to obey this, the great commission, this command of Jesus to make disciples. Of course, we see it here in Acts chapter one. Most of the time when people refer to the Great Commission, they're talking about Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, where Jesus gives his disciples this very clear command, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And, and, and I'm with you, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Of course, this passage, we see that both of these passages are kind of the same passage. They have the same themes. There's the promise of the authority of Christ. There's, in a sense, the promise of the presence of Christ we're gonna talk about in this. And there's this desire that disciples would be made uh, not just in your local context, but, but literally in a global context, that, that we would have a heart for the whole world, for, for the people that God is calling to himself from every nation. Jesus has commissioned his followers, his church, to, to represent him, to call others into fellowship with him, to, to call others into discipleship with Jesus. Now, I, I wanna stop here before we get too far into this because I realize we kind of live in an age where people might push back on that a little bit and say, well, hold on. You know, it's okay for you to have your faith, Jason, but just don't go pushing it off on everybody, you know? As long as your faith is private, as long as your faith makes you feel good, it's fine. But why do you have to go tell everybody about it? Why do you have to go make people you know, think that your faith is better than their faith? Why, why do we have to go proselytize people, right? And that's a really good question. And I just would say, we, we live in an age where actually I believe evangelism, sharing our faith, telling others about the hope that we have in the Lord is more challenging than uh, it has been, certainly in, in recent times. We, two, two factors are at play here. First of all, we live in an age of expressive individualism. These are, this is a challenge to uh, evangelism. And, and expressive individualism, uh, if that's kind of a new idea to you, it, it basically, the, the idea of it is this, that the fundamental truth comes from within, not from without, right? In order to be really true to yourself, you have to express yourself. You have to express what's inside of you. The way we say it in common vernacular is you do you, right? Or live your truth, right? Live your truth, man, right? This, this is something we say, and I'm not saying if you 
you know, have said this that you've wholeheartedly ascribed to expressive individualism, but the, this, is the, the, this is the ethic of the age. You do you. You live your truth. And what that kind of means is what's, what's ultimately and fundamentally important is what's on the inside of you and not what's on the outside. The, the, the outside should conform to the inside rather than the inside conforming to the outside. Now, this has changed. This is different. This is kind of a new world uh, we, we're living in. Uh, I, I recently read an article. Um, it was in New York Magazine. I read it this week. came out this week. And the article says this. The article's title was, Maybe Your, teens, maybe your Teen Doesn't Need a Mental Health Day. And then the subtitle was, Letting Kids Stay Home from School Can Be Really Bad for Them, Actually. I thought that was an interesting subtitle. Like, really? If your kids miss tons of school, that's bad for them? But of course, the article is about, and, and again, I, I want to say, of course, you know, I, I understand there's complexities and human emotion, and, and we should be sensitive to those things as Christians. But, but the article is talking about how kids these days are abusing this idea of a mental health day. You know, I don't want to go to school. I want to take a mental health day. And it's kind of, the article is New York Magazine. This is not like, you know, some, this isn't a Christian publication. The, the article is kind of challenging parents, say, hey, you, you might want to rethink this. But that's different. It, you know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to skip school, you, you had to convince your parents you were sick, Right. To quote Ferris Bueller, he says, the key to faking out parents is the clammy hand, right? You know, you give your hands a couple quick looks, you tell your mom you're sick, she, you know, she lets you stay home, right? The key to faking out your parents is the clammy hand. You, you had to show them externally that there was something wrong with you, and maybe if they believed you, they'd let you stay home from school. But if they didn't buy it, what would your parents do? They'd say, you're not sick, Right? There's no external evidence to the fact that you are sick. Get up and go to school, right? You got to go to school. But, but that's changed, right? It, it used to be that we would appeal to the truth of the outside world and conform what was inside to the outside. Now we live in an age where we have to conform the outside to what's on the inside. Yeah, the most extreme example of this, of course, is, is gender and the conversation that we're having about gender right now. You know, even when I was a kid, if I were to say, or if somebody were to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, we would say, well, no, you're not a woman. Look, look on the outside. There's evidence. There's, there's physical evidence that you are a man. You conf you're confused on the inside. You need to change your mind. We need to figure out what's confusing you here. And we need to change what's on the inside to conform what's more ultimate on the outside. But of course, today, it's the exact opposite, isn't it? Today, we say, oh, well, now we have to conform on the on the outside, the outside to what you feel on the inside. Anyway, my point is to say, this is an age of expressive individualism. Live your truth. You do you. And in an age like that, to make fundamental claims, absolute claims, like there is a God. <laughs> you have sinned against him. You're in need of redemption. The basic gospel claims, absolute claims that we must make in order to be faithful to the gospel. It can be very challenging. You know, another challenge to evangelism in our age is um, a right, and, and I want to be careful here because I, I don't want you to mishear me, but there, there's a great reaction against colonialism, and rightly so. Okay, so I want to be careful here. 
The abuses of colonialism are extreme. I mean, think about the abuses of American Indians, things like the slave trade, um, the corruption and exploitation and the horrible treatment of countries under colonial rule. So again, the condemnation of the horrors of colonialism are right and appropriate, and I'm so grateful that they're coming to light. But evangelism has been somehow attached to that. And people would say, you don't need to impose your religion on somebody else. You don't need to colonize people with your religion. And I would just put forward that evangelism is nothing like colonialism. It's not the exploitation of a people for selfish game. In fact, it's the the exact opposite. It's the giving of yourself to a people for their good. So so if somebody tries to frame evangelism in a colonialistic sort of framework for you, you you need to to push back and say it's it's not a colonialistic impulse, it's a humanitarian impulse, right? It's more akin to Habitat for Humanity or for digging a well. It's more akin to giving of yourself to go and serve the practical need, the the, the real need, the real spiritual need of, of this person, of this group of people, of this uh, community of people. And so I just want to encourage you with that. You know, people say we shouldn't colonize people. That's not what we're doing at all. We're, We're giving people, the gospel means good news, and it's appropriately right and good. Of course, Jesus commanded us to, to share it and to make disciples for their good and for his glory. So I wanted to address a couple of the challenges to the Great Commission, but, but now I want to move on to a vision for the Great Commission. And two ideas here. First, a vision for the kingdom, and then secondly, the power of the kingdom. And we see this in the text I mentioned before that Luke, of course, is writing Acts. He had written the the gospel of Luke, basically to say, this is what Jesus did in his life. What what Jesus did in his life, here's what it is, gospel of Luke. Acts, what Luke is doing, he's saying, here's what Jesus did through his church, and here's what he's still doing. These same kinds of things Jesus is still doing today through his church. So, of course, he, he begins to say in the book of Acts, if you wanna just jump into the text with me, Um, You know, he's saying in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is the gospel of Luke. Until the day that he was taken up after he'd given the commandments to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he'd chosen. I I think this is an interesting verse here. Verse three says, he presented himself alive to them by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God, right? So Luke is careful to say, look, the the resurrection, it wasn't just something that some guy had a dream about. So I think I had a dream that Jesus was raised. It wasn't just something that some guy said, I think I saw that guy looks like Jesus. Maybe he's raised. No, he's saying, no, Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days. He, he, He showed them many proofs that he had overcome death. You know, Paul picks up on the same idea in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, at one point, Jesus appeared to 500 people. You doubt the resurrection? Go and ask them. Paul literally challenges the people. Go, go and ask all these people. But many of them are still alive, he says. So Jesus has appeared. He's presented himself. He's proven, if you will, his resurrection for 40 days. And he is speaking about this idea here. And we're going to come back to this, the kingdom of God. Now, that's an important question. What is that? We'll get to that. It says, and while he was with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait of the promise of the Father. For he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that too. 
So when he had come together, they asked him, and then here's really the, the verse I wanted to get to. Here's their question. The resurrected Jesus, he's overcome death. They know he has power. And here's their big question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this topic is called a, you know, a vision for the kingdom. Now their vision for the kingdom was the geopolitical kingdom of Israel. Will you give us, Lord, geopolitical power? Will you remove us from the oppression of the Romans? Will you restore us to the greatness that we used to know? Will you make us great like we were in the time of David? Will you make us great like we were in the time of Solomon? Will you restore this geopolitical kingdom? We know that you're powerful. <laughs> Will you bless our vision for a great nation? And of course, Jesus responds and he says, guys, there's times and there's seasons that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses. You'll be witnesses to a totally different kind of kingdom. He begins introducing this, this new kingdom idea. And I think that's really important. You know, you really start to understand Jesus. You know, when, when all of us start off in a relationship with the Lord, I think we come to him like this <laughs> and we say, I, I'm starting to believe that you're powerful, Jesus. And, you know, I mean, I started following Jesus when I was in school. <laughs> and so I, we, we believe you're powerful, Jesus. So would you, would you help me with this test? You know, I know that you're powerful, Jesus. Would you make me good at football, right? Well, I know that you're powerful, Jesus. So we, if you just close this deal for me, <laughs> then I'll get the promotion and... When I buy the beach house someday, I'll have Bible studies there, right? You know. <laughs> and we make these deals with Jesus. Will you build up my vision of the kingdom so that I'll be blessed, right? Will you do this, Lord Jesus? And then I'll call you Lord, right? We, we, I think we come to Jesus like that with our vision of our little kingdom, right? But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, no, no, no. I'm inviting you into a more glorious and more eternal and more global kingdom than you could ever imagine. So trust me, believe in me. They, they've come to Jesus to asking him to bless their vision of their glorious kingdom, but he was inaugurating an entirely new and even more glorious kingdom. So the question becomes, what is it? What is the kingdom? When, when you see this idea, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, when, when, when he preaches about this, I mean, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, he's preaching about the kingdom. What is the kingdom and how does it go forward? So what is the kingdom? The way I like to describe the kingdom of Christ is, is this. It's, it's where the reign of Christ is visible. One day, Jesus, we, we read in Revelation, this is, this is what he's talking about when he says, it's not for you to know the seasons and the times. There actually is a day when kind of what they had in mind, it's gonna be greater than what they had in mind, but kind of what they had in mind is gonna come to pass. Jesus is gonna come and rule the world. His kingdom will be visible. He will, his reign will be known in every corner of the entire universe. One day we believe that is going to come. What it means to be a Christian really is to live now under the reign of Christ in the same way that one day everyone will live under the reign of Christ. It's to, with your life now, make the kingdom visible. 
to live as if the kingdom of Christ, the reign of Christ is real now. And, and by, by living under his reign now, you make the invisible kingdom of Jesus, the invisible authority of Jesus, visible. Right? That, that is really the task of the church. In fact, John Calvin, there's this great quote, he says, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. Now, how do you do that? Yeah, well, is it evidence? Is, is the reign of Jesus evidenced in your life? Is it visible in your life? When I consider your life, I say, man, you should see this person worship. When you worship the Lord, you're making the invisible reign of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, visible. This person really believes that Jesus is God. Look at the way they treat people. They don't treat people according to the ways of the world. They treat people according to the ways of Jesus. Jesus is reigning in their life. Look at the way they spend their time. Look at the way they spend their money. Look at what they're focused on, right? You're proving that the authority in your life is not the other kingdoms of this world, but the authority of your life is Jesus the Lord. That's a great question to ask yourself. Does my life make visible the invisible kingdom of Jesus? Is the reign of Jesus known in my life? Is the reign of Jesus, you know, one of the things I ask myself even, is the reign of Jesus known in my house, <laughs> I live in a house, there's not a lot of Christians that live on our road. Is, is, is our little house, uh, I li the reason I did a little pie piece, we live in a cul-de-sac, our, our lot's like a little piece of pie. Is, is our little slot on Golf U Road, is the kingdom of Jesus known there? Is it visible there? You know, the, the people that live around me, the, the, only, the only little slice of the kingdom of Jesus they may ever see is me and my household. Am I making visible the kingdom of Jesus? That's the task of the church. That's the call of the church. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. Let's go back to the text. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But here's the, here's the command. And you will be my witnesses. <laughs> How is the invisible kingdom, how is the authority of Jesus going to be known now in this age? It's going to be known through you. You will be my witnesses here in your local context, Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Now, that's what the kingdom is. The kingdom of Jesus is the visible reign of Christ. How does it go forward? How does it go forward? Well, again, we say here, it goes forward through us. You will be my witnesses. Our lives, our actions, our words, our displays of the kingdom. Now, in order for the kingdom to go forward, though, in order for people to come into this kingdom, we come into the kingdom by faith. And the Bible, of course, tells us that faith, in order to have faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, in order for us to come under his authority, faith comes by hearing this is Romans 10. And so at some point, in order to be a faithful witness to the kingdom, we actually have to say words, right? We have to speak gospel truth. We have to, we have to let the goodness of God displayed in Christ Jesus be known. And of course, this happens both through Christians individually and it happens through the church corporately. Now, the pattern that we see in the New Testament of the word of Christ the kingdom of Christ going forward through his church individually and corporately is this. It's evangelism, church planting, and church growth. Evangelism, church planting, and church growth. This is the pattern you see throughout the New Testament. So think about uh, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit of God did come upon the disciples, which happened not long after this, just days after this. 
what happens? The disciples leave the upper room. They go out into the streets of Jerusalem. And what do they do? They begin to evangelize. They begin to tell the good news of Jesus. They, they begin to show the people how Jesus is the fulfillment of their lives, how Jesus fulfills all of the prophets, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how Jesus really is the Lord, how he is the Messiah. And it says that day, 3,000 people believed. It's an amazing day. And of course, what happens? What happens to these new believers? They form a church. That's how the church of Jerusalem became. So evangelism leads to the church formation or church planting. And then of course, the church grows. And again, you see this pattern all throughout the Bible. This is not just a one-time Jerusalem thing. You know, I always think of, um, we, we, we were having a funny conversation the other day about um, uh, the, the church at Philippi. And, you know, the church of Philippi, I love that story. Church of Philippi, Paul goes to Philippi, gospel had never come there. He sits down and he meets this very well-educated, you know, very successful, very smart merchant uh, lady. And uh, her name was Lydia. And uh, he, he leads her to faith. Okay, so that's an interesting person. You know, it's very put together. Uh, we were kind of like putting people that we know, we were like, this would be like winning Jennifer McClish to faith, you know. In Christ, this very impressive, very smart person. And then the next guy, you know, it's the jailer. This a miracle happens. There's an earthquake, earthquake, and it's just a regular guy. I mean, he's just the jailer. We're like, this is like Butler Brewer, you know, like this is this is like when in Butler Brewer to faith, and the jailer and his family come, and and then of course the other person was this, and we didn't assign a person to this, but this demon possessed woman, and she goes, <laughs> we didn't, don't worry, yeah, 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 but. Uh, but you know, she comes to faith. But this is the first. This is the first uh, members of the church at Philippi. Very successful woman, Lydia. Very educated. Very put together. Regular blue collar guy. You know, the, the jailer, and then this demon possessed woman. And those people come together, and they form this church, and that church grows. So th this pattern we see over and over and over. Evangelism leads to church formation or church planting and then church growth. And as churches grow, they send people out. Of course, we see at Antioch, this commissioning of disciples that go out to preach and evangelize and start new churches. And I just want to say this strategy that we see in the book of Acts is the strategy of Christ's covenant. We, we have not come up with a new strategy <laughs> This is the strategy that we're trying to employ. In fact, next week, we're jumping into a sermon series called City to City to City, and we're gonna talk about what we see in the book of Acts. And we're gonna say, we wanna do the same thing. That, that's, that's why we commissioned as a church our dear member, Chris Wong, to move to Paris, to join with Brian and Carly. That's why we're supporting Brian and Carly and Massimo and, and all of these other church planters, you know, the West and Tokyo and all these other people. And we're praying that God would send laborers into this harvest that evangelism would go forward and that churches would be planted and those churches would grow. That's what we want to be true of our church. We are a church plant that happened because people came to faith in Christ. And as our church has been faithful to preach the gospel and as you have been faithful to spread the gospel, evangelize the, evangelize the world, represent the gospel, make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible, our church has grown and the kingdom has gone forward. There's a lot more we could say here, but I want to get to my, my second major point, which is the power of the kingdom. We've looked at a vision for the kingdom, but I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about this very, I guess, just honestly with you. 
Because this sounds easy. I can like lay this out and I got slides and I can show you strategy. But let's be honest. I mean, evangelism is hard. Church planting is hard. I mean, to go to someone in a secular age like ours, in a city like Atlanta, and say, yes, I've oriented my entire life around this Jewish guy that lived 2,000 years ago that I believe is God, right? And you should too. <laughs> He's your only hope. I mean, I mean, in a, a secular modern place like this, I mean, people, what? Does that even work? Can you even do that? You know, do you not feel like a total idiot? I mean, even this act right here, I'm gonna be honest, like there's a lot of times we had a class this week with our, uh, our, our apprentices and they were working on preaching. And I said, man, there's a lot of times where I just have to kind of get over the ridiculousness of what I'm about to do, to stand and try to tell people how to know God. But it only happens really because of two things. The, the power of the kingdom, this kingdom goes forward. And it really happens if you believe in these two things, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and if you have confidence in the ascension of Jesus, you have confidence in the ascension of Jesus. So I want to talk about the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Do you believe that? You know, I, um, I've said this before, Family Feud, I'm a, I'm a, I love Family Feud, you know, 100 people get surveyed. Survey says, you know, the show. Well, I think if you surveyed 100 Christians and you said, would you rather have the Holy Spirit of God in you or would you rather have Jesus, the physical Jesus, just with you? If you asked 100 Christians, which would you rather? I think most Christians would say, well, I'd rather have Jesus with me than the Holy Spirit in me. Like, what does that even mean, Right? But Jesus himself, John 16, he says, no, it's actually, it's actually your advantage. It's actually good for you. It's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna send the helper to you. Jesus is saying, it's actually better to have the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity within you. It's an amazing thing to believe than it even has to Jesus, the son of God with you. And you know what? If you read the Bible earnestly, you will of course agree with that. The disciples of Jesus, when he's with them, I mean, he's with them. They're, they're friends, they're ministering together. How amazing would that be? But yet, all throughout the gospels, what are the disciples? They're doubtful, they're faithless, they're fearful, they're confused. I mean, I think of Peter, the night that Jesus was arrested, he goes to Caiaphas's courtyard and a little girl comes up to him. And she says, you know, weren't you with them? And what does he do? He's terrified, this little girl. He's terrified, he curses the name of Jesus. How faithless is Peter? <laughs> and then just weeks later in Acts 4, we read about Peter standing, not in Caiaphas' court in front of a little girl, in front of Caiaphas himself, in front of all of the powerful leaders of the day, in front of a crowd of people. And what does he do? He says, this Jesus whom you crucified has become the chief cornerstone. This Jesus is the Lord. This Jesus has overcome death. He, he preaches boldly the name of Jesus in front of all these people that could kill him. He calls them out. What happened? What, what happened from courtyard Peter, where he's terrified of a little girl, 
to Portico Peter, <laughs> where he is bold in front of the leaders. And the answer is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him. The power of God came on him. Jesus goes on in John 16 to describe what the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He, he convicts us of sin. He points us to the righteousness of Christ. And I believe this. He leads us to the ultimate things. He talks about, it, it says he convicts us concerning judgment. He leads us to, he leads us to weigh things rightly, to, to, to realize what is actually ultimate in the world, to weigh things rightly. You know, you know We would make a lot of different decisions if, if we had a sense of the presence of God at all times, right? We would weigh things rightly, right? If, 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 if we really believe that God was standing right there with us all the time, you know, our temptation to sin would, would go down, you know, right? Because we, we would be able to see things and weigh things rightly. What, what Jesus explains in John 16 is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts you of sin. He points you to righteousness. He helps you to remember judgment. He helps you to weigh things rightly. And I would just say, like, that's a great question to ask yourself. I mean, am I a spirit-filled person? Am I living by the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, here's some diagnostic questions. You know, are you convicted of sin? Is that a regular pattern in your life? That when sin comes, your heart is pricked. And I would just say, if that is happening to you, you know, I had somebody come up to me this week and says, I'm, I'm dealing with great conviction. Is God mad at me? And I said, well, he's disciplining you, but he's not mad at you. He actually loves you. Conviction is actually a, a sign of God's love for you. The Lord convicts. He brings discipline to the one he loves. So, so, so receive this horrible feeling that you have right now Conviction is God's deep love for you as a loving father and turn from your sin and trust Christ. Number two, are you pursuing the character of Jesus? Is that happening in your life? As you look at the rhythm and pattern of your life, are you, are you being conformed to the image of Jesus? Are you, are you more and more and more seeing the character of Jesus in your life? That's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. And then number three, does your life reflect the mission of Jesus? Do you care about these things? Do you care about these things? Are you living your life toward these things? Are you weighing your life rightly? You know, here, here's the deal. I just want to say, you should be interested in this. I mean, if we're, if, if we're living by the Spirit, we're interested in these things. It's not that we have it all figured out. It's not that we're perfect evangelists. It's not that we're really good at church planting or pastoring. Let me just say, I feel, I feel awkward in these things all the time, and I'm a professional Christian. But we should at least be interested in the mission of Jesus and care about the mission of Jesus. So the power of the kingdom, it comes through confidence in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And then last but not least, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, but confidence in the ascension of Jesus. Verse nine, look at verse nine with me. It says, he said these things, and as they were looking on, he ascended. The, the, the Greek is more, he, he ascended. He was lifted up. He was literally lifted up, but there's more going on with this word ascended. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and says, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He was lifted up. He ascended. What does that mean? If you really want to understand the, the ministry of Jesus, we've been talking about this. You have to realize that God in Christ, the second person of the Trinity has come down to earth to identify with us in every way. And he lived a righteous life. We talked about this in the month of December. Jesus has lived a righteous life 
which means that he's achieved all righteousness. Jesus was living the life that you and I should have lived. And that means if you believe that, if you have faith in him, then you have nothing to prove. You stand before God justified. You stand before God with a record of righteousness. He also died an atoning death, which means he died the death that you and I should have died. Our, our sins, as it were, were transferred to him and his righteousness was transferred to us. That's the good news of the gospel. And if that's true, if Jesus died, if Jesus paid all of the punishment that we owe before God because of our sin, if that's true, then you don't have to fear judgment. You can go before God not being ashamed, but being set free. And what Jesus has done for you and the forgiveness that Jesus has achieved for you. But Jesus, of course, didn't stay that he overcame death in the power of the resurrection. And if that's true, then you have hope. You have hope that, that in Christ, you can overcome all things, even death. You have hope that you'll be with God. You have hope that God will make all things right, that he'll restore all things. And not only that, Jesus, after the resurrection, ascended. And again, he, he literally ascended. He went up, but, he, but more than that was happening. You know, in May, Charles III, what do we say? He ascended the throne in England. He ascended the throne. That's how we describe it. Now, what are we saying? You know, if you go to England, there's actually a throne room and there's a couple little stairs. We're not saying Charles III walked up the stairs, though he did. There's a physical thing that happened. We're saying more than that. He took his place on the throne as the rightful ruler, as the rightful king. That's what the ascension of Jesus means. Jesus has gone to sit on the throne of heaven as the righteous king, as the righteous ruler of the entire universe. And if you believe that, that Jesus has all authority, that's what he says in Matthew 28, if he has all authority, that he's ascended his throne, that he is sitting on the throne, let me just tell you, the authority that you think your neighbors have gets a lot less. The authority that you think your boss has gets a lot less. You know, think about these disciples. The authority that the Roman government has gets a lot less. This was a mark of the early Christians. You know, everyone would say in ancient Roman times, Caesar is Lord. And it made the Romans so mad when the Christians would say, no, Jesus is Lord. He has a more rightful, eternal, and powerful throne than any Roman ruler ever could have, than any human judge ever could have, than any human king ever could have. And his, I want you to hear this, is the only verdict that matters. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's lived a righteous life for you? Do you believe that he died the death that you should have died and that in him we have nothing to fear? Do you believe that he has overcome death? Do you believe that he ascended? And I, just, I want you to hear this. Our usefulness, our usefulness is very much related <laughs> to the degree to which we believe these things. Let me say it this way. Our ability to live out the Great Commission has everything to do with how much confidence we have in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the reigning authority of Jesus. I love the end of this story. You know, the, the men in white come and they say, why are you looking into heaven? <laughs> Go get to work. Go do it. Go do what he just told you to do. And guess what? He's going to come back. He's going to come back. 
in the same way that he went. And when he comes back, this invisible kingdom, this invisible authority will be made totally visible. Let's be about the work of making it visible now, what he's commissioned us to do. Let's bow our heads together. There's so much hope in the Lord Jesus. He's given us such a great hope. I hope that you believe that. He has achieved righteousness for us. He's died for our sin. He's overcome death. He reigns. This is our Lord. Won't you look to him? Won't you trust him right now? I just, I just want to ask you to trust him, to look to him. The reigning Lord. The one who makes all things right. I want you to hear this. I, I feel like this is for someone here tonight. The reign of Jesus is so perfect that he can even take the lousy things in our lives, the hard things, the painful things, and use them for a glorious end. As we look to him, as we trust him. And so tonight, uh, as we talk about our um, command to go, it starts with this. It starts with looking to Jesus, beholding him, loving him, knowing him. The degree to which we believe in his authority, the degree to which we understand that he sent his spirit to us and, and have confidence in that, that is the degree to which his kingdom will be made visible through our little lives. So Father, in light of that, we worship you now. We come as sinners in need of your grace. We come uh, as people who had no hope without your grace, Lord, but who you have called close, who you've brought near by the blood of Christ. So move our hearts, Lord, toward you. Renew our minds. Give us faith, Lord. Give us eyes to see these things. And give us hearts and lives to act and believe. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.